And, you know, music really is a, a blessing given from God, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he made music. He, it's not a manipulation when your heart is stirred during music because he gave us music and, and he tells us in scripture to sing a new song to him. So as we sing, he's glorified. Uh, sometimes I would encourage you as the, the words are going, don't sing and just listen to the words. Or as you start singing, really think about the words because these words that we sing are chocked full of really good knowledge as well, but just sing it from your heart. It's not just words, it's words from our heart. Um, if you're new, I'm uh, Derek Carpenter. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been here in the last couple weeks, you're going, who's this guy? Because I haven't taught for a few weeks. Uh, we are so blessed here to have others that can teach. We have Alex who teaches now and then, Paul who can teach in Preston. And, and here's what's kind of cool. We're all different ages. Uh, one of us is a little older than the rest of us, but, but we're all different ages. Um, <laughs> But what I love is, is how when, when each one teaches, I, I just hear over and over, oh, I was so blessed by so-and-so because they all bring such uh, personal experience and, and scriptural knowledge to the word. And our goal, so if you're here, here's kind of a, a secret. Our goal when we teach the word isn't that you just become smarter uh, and know all the things about the Bible. Our goal is that you experience what God wants to do through his word and experience his change. You know, the, the scripture says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Meaning, when we open up the scripture, God pulls out his spiritual scalpel, then the Holy Spirit gets to work on us. To make, amen, yes, to make our lives better, because that's what he has for us. Let me pray as we start. God, you are so good. You are so good. There is so much peace that comes as we just say, you are good. Uh, I am healed. I am whole. Uh, all the words in that song are so encouraging because it's not, it's not who we are in ourselves. It's who you have made us to be and who you have chosen us to be. God, we, we love you. We ask that you would meet with us this morning. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Be here. Stir our hearts. God, if, if anybody has brought in burdens this morning, whatever they may be, relational, financial, uh, medical, uh, personal sin, whatever these burdens we've carried in, I pray that we would put them in a box and let you deal with them today. And you could fill us with your peace and your joy and do in us what you want us, what you want to do in us. God, let us not leave unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, quick quiz. Anyone in here love doing projects? Raise your hands. Like new projects. You hear a new project? All excited. Okay. Who has a project going right now? Uh, now, spouses, who wishes they would finish that project? <laughs> yeah, so I, I get excited for a new project. I love new projects, and my wife raised her hand. Because I have this tendency, and maybe you can relate, I start a new project, and then it gets to like the finishing, and it's like, I'm bored. Like, I, I want a new project, or a new project comes about, and it's like, I need to do that one instead. And so, for example, I have a couple sheds that are, they're done. Um, but if you walk around back, you're like, you didn't finish painting the back. Well, nobody sees the back. You know, or, or, the, or the trim. You know, it's like that trim could be painted, and there's just a little piece in there. It's like, I had to go do that. And now I got, I just, I have trouble finishing it. I get bored with those details. Anybody relate? Anybody feel that way? spiritually with your own life. So, so consider you as a project, because you are, 
And so am I, but, but we're all on this path of life. Now think of yourself spiritually. Do you ever get frustrated with where you are in your growth? So I've been a believer for 33 years-ish, and I get frustrated sometimes looking in the mirror and seeing where I'm at. You know, I, I'm not far enough along the road or sin that I'm still tempted by uh, or, or things I think God would have me do and I'm just not doing it good enough. And I feel like, like I'm this project and, and I'm not quite there yet. Maybe you guys can relate to that. Or maybe you, you look at yourself and you, and you just get so down that this project of you has kind of just been put on the shelf for a little bit. You've been distracted by the world. Maybe it's school, maybe it's a relationship or many relationships or, or work. And so you kind of, you put this project of your spirit over here and it's just kind of sitting there un, unfinished. Uh, I want to encourage you for one thing, we won't be finished in this life. We, we, we don't arrive, but we're starting a series today through Ephesians. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians and the book of Ephesians is, is a, it's a compact masterpiece. It's only six chapters. But this book is considered by many as one of the, the greatest in all of Scripture. I mean, how can you say that? But it is because it, it contains a great deal of theology. It contains a great deal of, of personal knowledge about God. And the first three chapters are really about knowing. The first three chapters, Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus saying, know these things. And it's not like they don't know them, but he's reminding them, you need to know these things and the last three chapters are really, now that you know these things, do these things. This knowledge should be applied into, in this way. And so that's why we're titling this series through Ephesians, Know and Do. And I mean, we can't totally separate them. But if you are one of those that you feel discouraged at times, maybe as I was praying, that box is, is full of stuff. And there's some things that you just need to give to him. Maybe you need encouragement. This book is for you. Maybe you're a little bit confused about God and, and how he views you and your relationship with him. This book is for you. Maybe you're not fully clear on what his plan is from beginning to end. That's one of the main themes in the book of Ephesians is Paul is basically sharing God's plan from before beginning to the end of time. His plan for the church and his plan for you is all in here. So don't miss a week or you're just going to be totally hosed. Um, <laughs> But let, I do want to encourage you one thing with this series, bring a Bible. I know some of us love the electronic thing, and that's great. If, if you're stuck on that, do that. But this series, open up scripture, and maybe you didn't bring one and grab the one in front of you, but we're going to see so much in here packed in few verses that it's kind of handy to be able to look at it and skip around, and maybe your electronic device can do that. Mine doesn't. It's like scroll down, scroll back up, scroll down. So I would encourage you. Bring a Bible and a pen and a pen and be willing to mark in it and circle some things because we're going to learn a lot of what God has to say to us through this book of Ephesians. So turn to Ephesians. And again, if you uh, have trouble finding it in your Bible, the table of contents is your friend. Look it up. It'll give you the page number. But here's a little context. This book is written from Paul to Ephesus. Uh, and not just one church, it's the churches in the area. So Ephesus was located in what was then known as Asia. It was a, a Greek-Roman area. It was not a place where a lot of Jews were. There were Jews there because they were everywhere. But it was primarily a Gentile area. And so Paul is writing to Gentiles. That's what most of us would be, Gentiles. And so he's writing to these people that have come out of pagan religion. 
The city of Ephesus was the home of Artemis. Uh, if you read in Acts 19, you can read Paul's time in Ephesus. And a riot breaks out because here's this temple that is the center of not just spiritual life, but life um, in Ephesus. And, and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Artemis was this, this god that they worshipped and everything was wrapped around her. But they also had all these other gods. Many small gods, little different gods. And so you had to worship this God for this and this God for that. And magic was really a, a strong part of daily life, oddly enough. You see in Acts 19 where these new Christians, we're going to talk about this later in the book, they gather up their magic books and they burn them. The value was worth about $6 million of today, of what it would be. So that was a big deal. Like that's a lot of magic books. So their life was wrapped around spirituality, but it was just wrong. They were confused. You know, people might be possessed or cursed or hexed. And then you would call this person to come release the hex by doing this. And basically, they were very insecure spiritually, very insecure, not knowing what's happening, what they need to do, where they need to be. That's who Paul's writing to. Now, Paul had spent two years there more than any other city. He went, he started the church. And, and in the book of Acts, we see all the area of Asia around Ephesus were being stirred up because of Paul, really because of what God was doing through Paul. Paul was doing miracles. People were being released from demons. And so great things were happening in Ephesus. Uh, a riot breaks out and Paul has to leave. Now we're eight years later. Eight years later, Paul is in prison in Rome and he's got some time on his hands. So he starts writing letters. Uh, they're known as the prison epistles, and this is one of those. He writes to this church in Ephesus, but it's different than a lot of his other books. A lot of his books are circumstantial, like 1 Corinthians. And he's writing to this church in Corinth that really, they're just doing it all wrong. And so he's trying to, to fix them. This one isn't that way so much. He's really, it's a little bit broader of our relationship with God and God's plan. It looks like this letter was intended to be distributed uh, for teaching purposes and for encouragement purposes. But one other thing before we read the first verses that I want to point out, this letter was written to saints. Now, if you were raised Catholic, you're like, oh, I know saints. They've done a miracle, and I'm not sure all the list of what makes a saint. Biblically, every Christian is a saint. Biblically, every single person who has placed their faith in Jesus as Lord is considered a saint. That's why Paul starts all his books to the saints who are in Christ. That, that's what a saint is. So the word saint uh, is similar to the word sanctified. It means set apart for a purpose. So you and I, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are set apart for God for a purpose. And we're going to learn a lot about that purpose in this book. I point that out to say this book isn't primarily evangelistic. It's really to believers. Although as we read through, this is beautiful stuff. If you're in here and you don't know Jesus as Lord and you hear this, this should be really attractive to you because although it's not meant to be evangelistic, it's sharing all this beautiful truth about who God is and what he's doing in his people. And the invitation is there. Join him, have life in him. With that in mind, let's start. I'm going to read the first six verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, we're going to go through all of this over the next two weeks, but the first 15 verses, really verse 3 through 15 or through 14, it's one long sentence. It's kind of one big long run on thought. So don't be confused with periods in our English because there aren't any. So when it talks about, you know, blessed uh, or that we would be uh, blameless before him, end of verse 4, in love, he predestined. People will argue, where, where does the love go, before or after? It kind of goes with all of it. But it's one big long sentence, one big long thought. And I say that to say it's important that we take it as one big thought and all together rather than pulling one little piece out. And a lot of times this is where we go wrong in the church is we pull one little piece of scripture out and we wrap our lives around that. We form a doctrine around one little thing rather than that, that thing in context as a whole. couple themes. What do we see in here? Uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. What? In Christ. There's a theme. I mean, just kind of scroll through and look down the next 14 verses. Over and over you see verse 4, in Him. Verse 7, in Him. Uh, verse 9, in Christ. Verse 10, in Him. Verse 11, in Him. Verse 13, in Him. Twice in verse 13. You see this theme, in him. So all these blessings, we're going to see eight blessings in these verses that refer to, that belong to those who are saints, those who are in Christ, but they're found in Him, not in a religious system, not in going to church, not in being a Christian. They're found in Christ, in the unity of that relationship. And as we look at these eight blessings that we're going to find, eight blessings, there's a purpose. And the purpose isn't just that you will be blessed, which is awesome. There's another purpose that you see throughout this. Uh, look at verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us. If you look down the end of verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14. It ends. To the praise of His glory. I want you to keep that in mind. Because why are we going to study these blessings and see these amazing truths about God and about who we are in Him? So that it results in praise. That's what it goes to. It doesn't go to us then being legalistic or religious or something like It goes to worship. And so I expect when we finish and we go back to worship, everybody's going to sing really loud with their hands up in praise, you know, however you're most comfortable. But the result of this should be praise. The result of this maybe isn't a to-do, it's a Wow, you got to be kidding me. That's the result. So we're going to look at eight blessings, but we're only going to look at two today. I actually had planned for this to go through all this in one day, and I was too overwhelmed because it was, I see heads shaking going, thank you. Um, it's so good, and there's so much that is life-changing to you and me that I just had to split it up into two weeks. Uh, so Katie notes, next week is already done. You have less work to do this week. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Here we're going to see these blessings that are ours in Christ, but notice something about these blessings. They are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. A lot of times when we think of blessings, when we think of life in Christ, or maybe when we were initially drawn to Jesus, it was to make our life better. You know, uh, we're going to have more money, better health, better relationships, which some of that can happen in Christ, but the real blessings that are ours in Him are spiritual blessings. And notice he says, every spiritual blessing. This is what's really cool about being in Christ, being a follower of Him, is God then, and we're going to see this next week, adopts us and brings us into His house, and then it's kind of like, well, everything that's mine is now yours. Everything. Every spiritual blessing. He's not one of those fathers that's like, I'll just give you a little bit here, a little bit. And if you're good enough, here's your allowance of blessing. All our blessings, all his blessings are ours right up front. So this is in your notes, if you're a note taker. Every Jesus follower is blessed in Christ, resulting in us praising his glory. Every Jesus follower is blessed in Christ, resulting in us praising his glory. Now, here's the first blessing, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. This is so deep. That's why we're only covering a few verses. Here's the first blessing. You are chosen by God. You are chosen by God. Now, I want to point one other thing out in all of this. He's talking about we, us, you, as in y'all, for those Southerners. It's plural. So these blessings are really for the church as a whole, for a group as a whole. Uh, and this whole book of Ephesians really does open up some, some new mysteries and understanding about what God is doing through his church. But he's speaking to groups of believers. Now, this does apply to us individually. It has to. It applies to us individually and then as a group. But we make a mistake when we think that our spiritual life is just us and God. You know, there, biblically, there really are no Lone Ranger Christians. Those that would say, yeah, I love God, but I don't like His church. You know, I love God, but I don't like Christians. I don't, I don't need to be in relationship. This is referring to us, y'all, we. These blessings are ours, but they're also yours. They're also mine individually. And this first one, that you are chosen by God. What's it mean to be chosen? You guys remember, some of you are probably still there. You remember going at recess in fifth grade and picking teams for basketball or football? And you, two captains, they're the best ones out there, and they start choosing. And then there's me, who's like tiny and small, and I'm the last one chosen. There was this one time, I remember. This, I was in fourth grade, and Ryan, Ryan was the quarterback. And he chose me, and I wasn't last. <laughs> now, I, th this is how, how insecure I was as a kid, I guess, and maybe still am. He chose me, and as he picked me, he's like, I need a great receiver. I'm like, ha-ha, oh, really? <laughs> you know, and I was like, don't drop the ball, don't drop the ball. But, but just remember that feeling of being chosen? Or maybe you're, you're married, or you're dating, and that idea of, of somebody saying, I, I choose you, that wedding day. We have a couple in here going to get married pretty soon, uh, Megan and Slade, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But, but there's this beautiful thing of, I, I choose you, and 
Why choose you too? And then making that choice public, there's just something about being chosen. You know, my wife chose me before she knew everything about me. Um, <laughs> and she hasn't left yet. <laughs> there's, there's something significant about that of, of I choose you. And here we look at God choosing us, but choosing you. This isn't mechanical. You know, we're going to see this a little bit more. This isn't just religion. You know, it's not like there's this God that's out there, distant, that, that wants all these to, to serve him, and he's got his thing going. It's, it's way more intimate than that. It's God looking, making, creating, and then going, I, I choose. I choose you. I, I choose you. I mean, how does that make you feel? That God would look at you and say, I choose you? There's a reason he's writing this. And he's writing to these Ephesians that came out of this very insecure religion of there's this God and this God. And really the gods were all selfish and about themselves, you know, doing their own thing. And, and you'd have to appeal to these spirits, which by the way, in context in then, they, there was real magic. There were demons behind a lot of this going on. So there was stuff going on. So they were insecure. But here when it comes to the one true God that they've come to know, it says he chose you. And he chose us in him. He didn't just choose us. You know, out there, I like that one. He chose us in him, this, this intimate unity with Jesus Christ. We are chosen. Now, we make a mistake sometimes when we look at our own Christian life or our own salvation and we think that it was up to us. Now, be ready to be confused a little bit. We're going to work this out. But we think that it's up to us to choose and believe and, and reach out to God. And it's li like we're drowning in the lake and God's just up there watching and waiting for us to go, I need you. He's like, finally, I've been waiting for you to reach to me. And then he grabs us. The picture biblically is different. Ephesians, same book. Look over at chapter two real quick. Verse one. It says, and you were dead and the trespasses and sins in, once you once in which you once walked following the course of this world. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What's it mean to be dead? Dead? <laughs> I, I mean, what's a dead person? Partly alive? It's not like the princess bride thing where it's like, he's just mostly dead. <laughs> you know, uh, you should go see if you haven't seen it. But, but the picture is that we were dead spiritually. Physically, we're alive. We're born, we go through, but we're actually born dead. We're born separated from God because of sin. So we're born in our flesh, and our flesh is all of us that has a tendency to go away from God, and we're born dead unless God does something. Look at verse 5 in chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. You have to go back to verse four, but God, speaking of God, but God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. So the picture of our salvation is us not drowning and trying to swim. God save me. It's us lifeless on the bottom of the lake, dead. And God reaches in and God pulls us out, gives us the heim, whatever, breathes life, makes us alive. That's this picture. That's this idea. You see it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. You see it elsewhere in Galatians and elsewhere in Scripture. We were dead apart from God, and He made us alive. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. 
The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Something awesome happens. He chooses us and he makes us alive. Titus 3.5. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. But here's my question. Why did he choose us? Why did he choose you? Did he look forward in time and go, you know what? That one's pretty awesome. Titus 3.5 says he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. He didn't choose you because you were good enough. He chose you because he wanted you. Isn't that even better? Amen. He didn't didn't look forward in time and see how good you would be. Like, here's all the people. Ooh, that one's going to be good. That one's going to work hard. He didn't. He chose you because he wanted you. And he chose you in him. And here, leave this one up, Titus. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is withholding what is deserved. We're going to see grace. Grace is giving what's not deserved. Mercy is withholding what is deserved. We deserve death and hell. He's withholding that. We deserve alienation from God. We don't get that because of his mercy, because of what he has done. He saves us, his choice. This gives great confidence. And here's here's where this gives confidence to me, that he's kind of taken control of this. I I was at camp this summer, um, and I shared this story with a a group before, but uh, I was speaking to our junior hires and a bunch of other junior hires. And Thursday night of camp is kind of decision night. We talk about Jesus all week. There's a lot of uh, people new to Jesus or those that don't know Jesus or other religions that come to camp, and they they hear about Jesus all week. And Thursday night is the night where we finally just kind of put the nail in it and go, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want to respond to it? And I remember I was in in our room before that that evening, and I was preparing what I was going to say and teach, and there's this part of me that's like, don't mess up. You know, don't mess up. If you mess up, some of these kids who might say yes to Jesus aren't going to because you're so bad at it. And, and God just kind of, Jesus kind of gave me this picture. He said, I, I came in flesh. I, God, left my throne, put on a body, not even a good looking one. Scripture teaches that. I, I came to earth poor. I, I lived a vagrant, kind of wandering around. I was tortured abused, mocked, and not very successful. When Jesus died and left, he had between 100 and 400 followers, if you put it together. So, I mean, you could argue maybe not so successful in that time. I did all this, and I died and rose from there. You think you're going to miss one? You think I'm not going to run down those who I want? And it gives me great confidence to just go. And this should give you great confidence in sharing your faith. It's not up to you. I mean, careful. Don't just say whatever you want. Let's, but it's not up to you. God will use you as just a, a piece of the pie, just a piece. People will go from here to here. And most of us, we don't just hear and believe. There's kind of a process of God doing some things in our life, right? Maybe some of you have experienced that. And, and we are blessed here at Common Ground that some of you have gone through this. And then you came in here and we got to do the, the nail. You know, we got to do the yes part and do the baptism part. But it didn't just happen here. God was pursuing you. He chose you, and he was, he was drawing you to him throughout your life. Circumstances, people. He chose us because he wants us. 
In His love, He planned for us to meet with Him. Now, here's the question you guys are not asking. So if He chose us, am I just a robot? <laughs> then are my choices real choices? If He chose me from the beginning of time, could I have not chosen Him? And if He did, then I'm not free. There's the great tension that comes with this truth. God chose us, so are our choices real choices? John 5.40 says, this is Jesus speaking. And he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And, and these, they knew the scriptures. And before this, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will find life. He says, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Refuse. There's a choice on the person's part. They were refusing to believe. They saw the truth in scripture. They knew the scripture better than you and I do. And they refused to believe. They refused to come to him to have life. So are our choices real choices? Absolutely. And I could go... I could go through all the scriptures in here to go, our choices are real choices. We're not robots. Think of this in, uh, in marriage, in a couple. You know, did I choose Callie and how she's stuck because I chose her? You know, we're out there on the college campus and I'm just following around. I chose you. I chose you. No, at some point she turns like, all right, I choose you too. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's this relationship. God chose you, but also we choose him. That's the beautiful part of this relationship. How does that work out exactly? Uh. <laughs> there's a mystery and there's some tension there. That's okay. We can live in the tension that we don't have to understand God. I heard a missionary from somewhere in the East share years ago uh, about the difference between Western thought and Eastern thought. And by the way, the Bible was written in Eastern context. And this was before the Reformation, before we got all intellectual um, and linear thinking. It was more block thinking, is what this missionary shared. Uh, there, you can have this truth, and you can have this truth, and we're okay not making them line up perfectly. Whereas we want to be all logical and linear, because this is true, then this is true, then this is true. And people will take this doctrine and do that and end up in a place that's not biblical. They'll go and they'll land to a place to go, Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for those he chose. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly that God died for everyone, that Jesus died for everyone, that the sins of the world were covered. And so we got to make sure we stay in context here, that Jesus died for all, and our choices are real choices. And again, you might be saying, well, that's not fair then why didn't God just choose everybody? Well, let's talk about fair real quick. Is the gospel fair? Is it fair that you and I lived lives of sin, rejected God, pursued our own thing, and that Jesus, who never sinned, was perfect, died on the cross for our sins, that we could then be reconciled to God through him? Is that fair? It's, it's way not fair. And I'm so glad it's not fair, because if it was fair... I'd be destined for hell. And so the fair argument doesn't really work because if it was fair, none of us would make it. Rather, the gospel's not about fair. It's about grace and mercy. And this book of Ephesians is all about God's grace of God giving what we don't deserve. And so we don't deserve it, but God gives it. Now, why? Why does he choose us? Look back. We're going to see the second blessing that is ours. 
Verse 4, I'll read that again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here's number two. You are predestined by God. You are predestined by God. Now, these kind of go together. You're chosen and you're predestined. That word predestined means to choose beforehand. So when did God choose us? Well, you see in verse 4, before the foundation of the world. And some will try and figure this out in their mind by going, God's outside of time. He looked forward in time, saw who would choose him, and he chose them. It's not what the Bible teaches. Then his choice isn't a real choice, right? Then we're the ones in control. That's a scary place to be. He's the one in control. That Again, consider the context. Why is Paul writing this? He's trying to give security to people. He's trying to encourage people. He's not trying to form this theological doctrine that we build our worlds around just this. That's not his purpose. And he's talking about being predestined. That word is only used a few times in Scripture. And it talks about boundaries. The word means boundaries, that boundaries have been set up. So I pictured you know, driving down a highway, and there's a, a wall on this side, and there's a wall. On, that's kind of the boundaries. You know, and so that's the idea of predestined. We're, we're planned beforehand to go this direction within these boundaries. It's a difficult word, but what are we predestined to? So this road, where is it going? Look back at verse 4. We're chosen to be holy and blameless in Him, in love. That's why we're chosen, and that's where we're predestined to go, to be holy and blameless in Him. This is called sanctification. It's the process by which we, we become more and more like Jesus in this life. And it will be perfected later. It will be finished later. That's what we're predestined to. Don't be confused to think that what predestination means is that God has every step of your life laid out, and you better follow it. That's not at all what it means. What this is talking about is the ultimate result of what he's doing. You're going to get there. Predestined, Philippians 1.6. Paul, same, same writer, says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. That's what predestination is talking about. He who began a good work, so he who called you, he who cho chose you, he, he who brought you in, if you are like me and you look at yourself in the mirror as this project that's just not there, be encouraged, he's going to complete it. He, amen, he's going to complete you. That doesn't mean we're not going to have falls and dinging in this life, but he's going to complete it. But predestination, this picture is that he's planned it and it's going to happen when he returns. It doesn't mean we don't engage in the process now. It doesn't mean we don't submit to him and become more and more like him in this life, but it's a, a process which will not be complete until he returns. That's what it means. It doesn't mean when you, you're trying to make a decision, you're like, God is predestined and I have to choose the right thing. That's not it at all. In our choices, God is more concerned about who we are in those choices maybe than what they are. He wants to be supreme in the choices that we make. Not necessarily that we take this job or that job or this one, but rather, as it says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. Is He supreme in those decisions that we're making? Romans 8, 28 to 30. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Shares the same truth 
in another book, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See the context? Whenever this doctrine is taught, it's always taught in the same context. The context is that he works it all out for good. That's the point. The point isn't determinism. That's not biblical. That everything's lined out and we're just going through the motions. The point is that it's going to work out later. Paul wants to give them hope and security in Jesus Christ. That's why I have this here. Anybody know what this is? You can't, yeah, there you go. This is an anchor. Now, we love to boat. We're, we're blessed to have a boat that we got years ago. Um, and sometimes we'll go out to Topaz or somewhere else and we'll spend some time on the beach and we'll drive that boat right up onto the beach. But what happens is other boats drive by and the wind comes and waves. And so that boat just starts to do this and eventually it's on its side hitting the, the shore or it starts to drift out and Lydia go back and get it and bring it back in. You know, but the boat is kind of flopping around. When I was a kid, we went camping and, and we had a boat. And I remember my dad waking up in the middle of the night, my dad and my uncle, and one of the boats was gone because it wasn't tied off well. And they hopped in the other boat and they found it just drifting out in the lake. Um, and they were able to bring it in. But the point of an anchor is to keep a boat from doing that, to keep a boat from drifting. So you pull that boat in, you tie it off, and you anchor this. If you do it right, you dig a hole, you put the anchor in the hole, you put a bunch of rocks on it, that boat's not going anywhere. These truths about who we are in Christ should be an anchor to our soul. That's why I want to show this anchor. It should be confidence to you and me because our confidence is in Him because He loves you and He chose you. Not based on our works, not based on what we can do, and so we can flip back and forth and be worried. Guess what? He promises he's going to complete the work he began. And so we can trust him. Life's going to be hard. Our kids are going to do things we wish they didn't do. We're going to do things we wish we didn't do. Finances are going to have, we're going to have trouble. Health, we're going to have trouble. But we can always come back to this anchor of God said, no, I've already, I make sure it's going to work out in the end for you. You love me. I love you. It's going to work out. He chose us and predestined us that he'll complete the work he began. That's the point of this passage. Again, the point isn't to run off in some other direction and form a theology. Uh, and here's what happens with this one. People will wrap this theology around and they'll look at this. Okay, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. So those of you who aren't holy and blameless, you're not part of us. I know of five churches that have been split because of this doctrine right here, of some taking us so far of God loves those whom he chose, he doesn't love anybody else, and then things are just separated. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't let your mind leap there. Rest that this is true. He chose you, he loves you, not based on anything you've done. That's the point of what he's trying to say here. Scripture says that God desires none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And look here, it's not separated from an intimate relationship. The end of verse four, in love, in love. This is, this is beautiful. This is intimate. This is close. And it results in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus, in him. I'm going to read this real quick in the New Living. 
Now, we, we don't study out of the New Living because it's really, it's not meant for that. The New Living is great to give you more of a current language, but I like the way they say this. Ephesians 1, 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. That's actually a really good translation of what this means in the Greek. This is what he chose to do, and it gives him great pleasure. Do you realize that? He looks at you with great pleasure. There's the anchor. There's the security we have. And what's the result? So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. This loving, beautiful relationship leads us to praise. Here's our confidence again, Philippians 1.6. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Have you been discouraged? Have you been worried? Have you put your own growth on a shelf? Maybe you're here and you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. Jesus says this to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is rest living in him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you don't know Jesus, he is inviting you to have this security in him. He is inviting you to say yes to him today because he died for you. He paid the price for all your sins on the cross. Say yes to him, come to him, and you can have this security in him. Not wishy-washy, not a boat being tossed in, in, to and fro by the winds of this world, but secure in him. And now we're gonna do what I asked you to do. We're gonna praise. We're going to worship. We're going to glorify Him. Today, we get to take the Lord's Supper. We do this every other week. Uh, this is where we remember Jesus' death on the cross. We remember that He paid for our sin with His blood and with His body. Scripture tells us that we, whenever we take communion, it doesn't tell us how often to do it, but it says whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of Him until he comes again. So this is one of those habits that we have because God told us to. There's really two of these rituals or sacraments. There's baptism. We're told to be baptized. And then we're told to observe the Lord's Supper. And we take it remembering his death. So this is a time. This is a time for us to have some introspection. Ask God to reveal to you if there's any unconfessed sin. Is there anything in your life you need to deal with? Deal with it before you come up and take the Lord's Supper. Is there anybody you have wronged? Is there anybody you have not forgiven? Scripture talks about that as well. Before we take the Lord's Supper, we want to make sure we're on the right page. We're, on, we're on good with other believers. Because disunity is one of those big things where, where Scripture says, do not take the Lord's Supper if you're in disunity. Be unified. So deal with your sin. Plan to deal with somebody if you need to go say you're sorry to somebody. And then we take the Lord's Supper, worshiping, praising, thanking Him for His glorious grace that He has chosen us and that He's going to work it all out in the end. Let me pray. 
Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your love. Thank you for choosing us, not because of anything we've done, not because we're good, but because of your grace, because of your mercy. God, there is so much security and hope in the idea that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's great security in there. We thank you that you say, I got this. Stay close to me. I got this. We thank you. I pray that, that every soul in here today would feel that security in you. God, if there's anybody in this room that has not surrendered to you as Lord, I pray that now would be the day of salvation, that they would find the anchor for their soul in you, that they would say yes to you, that they would receive your invitation and they would receive forgiveness, a washing and a renewal, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, your spirit in them to then walk through life and to secure their eternal salvation. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.